Indie Media. Firstly, Derek, in your latest work, The Myth of Human Supremacy, uh, you tackle the fundamental assumption of industrial civilization, that is, the assumed superiority of humans and their domination of nature. Of course, this is uh, by no means a foreign topic to you, but why did you feel compelled to write this book right now? Well, I think that the, um, the notion that humans are superior to and separate from everybody else is the biggest problem facing the world today. It, is, it underlies a lot, of our, a lot of the destruction of the natural world, and it um, also completely pervades our culture. It's, it's inherent at every level. Like one, one example that's, that's pretty, pretty small on one level, but it's very interesting, is that um, one of the discussions I had with my editor is that um, when I use when I talk about a tree, I will always say the tree who, and the river who, and the mountain who, the mountain who is being destroyed, the mountain who is being killed, and um, even on that sort of linguistic level, you know, if you if you use a word processing program and it has autocorrect, it will try to tell you to change, you know, the tree who just got cut down, it will try to change you to that to the tree that. And the thing is, the tree is not a that, it's a who. And this is really crucial for an, an, a bunch of reasons. One of them is that so many indigenous people have said to me over the years that the fundamental difference between Western and indigenous ways of being is that even the most open-minded of Westerners generally perceive listening to the natural world as a metaphor as opposed to the way the world really is. And another way to say that is that we Westerners generally perceive the world as consisting of resources to be exploited as opposed to other beings to enter into relationship with. And this is really important because how you perceive the world affects how you behave in the world. The truth is, if I cut down a tree, I'm taking the life of someone who, whose life is just as valuable to it as mine is, as to me. I was getting interviewed a few years ago by um, some guy from Nature Online magazine, which is a, a magazine I don't like for, for many reasons, primarily because it's so human supremacist. It's just dreadful. And one of the questions that he asked me was, he said basically, you know, nature doesn't care if it exists or not. It has no sentience, no awareness. So nature only has value because we, because we are here to value it. And it was interesting because as he said this, like right now, as, as I'm speaking to you, I'm standing on my mom's porch, and I'm looking at all these redwoods, and I'm looking at these cedars, and I'm looking at, at I'm, I'm hearing morning doves. Anyway, so at that moment when he said that to me, when that was his question, I looked out the window at my house, and I saw a mother bear lying on her back in the grass with two, ba- with two cubs playing on her belly. And I said, do you mean to tell me that she is not enjoying the sun right now? She's not enjoying playing with her children? Is this what you're telling me? And he said, yes, that's what I'm telling you. <laughs> and I said, have you ever known a bear? Because I see bears every single day. I said, have you ever known a bear? And he said, no. And I was like, well, then what are we even talking about? My point is, this is really common, this notion that, only humans can appreciate nature. Only humans, like when you think about what are the greatest pieces of art in the world, we think of the Mona Lisa, we think of, um, you know, Van Gogh, we think of, uh, you know, whatever other artists or, or great pieces of art. But what about, what about the sound of meadowlarks? Why is that not art? My point is that we have this idea that the world is like a machine where 
You know, there's all these parts you can put in and take out, and they have no meaning in themselves, as opposed to more like a body where if they take out, you know, if they take out your spleen and your heart and your lungs and they sit them on a table and then they come back three weeks later, you know, they can't put it back together like that. And this all has to do with this notion that um, what humans create has function. Has, oh, that's what, that was the word they used. They said only what humans create has true function. And, of course, that's A, complete nonsense, and B, that idea is how we can say, oh, it's okay if we kill the phytoplankton because we'll come up with a way to artificially remove carbon from the air. And that's okay if we deforest the entire planet because we'll come up with some other way to do it, a real way. There's this profound, profound hatred of what is embodied. And if humans create it, actually male humans create it, then it's meaningful. There's a line somebody said to me, maybe, gosh, this was 20 years ago, this guy said to me that as the measuring ability of much of science becomes more sensitive, there is no way that they're going to be able to maintain those fundamental premises of science that basically the world consists of, of objects, that as the measuring systems become more, more sensitive, we'll have to start picking up on this, and we'll have to start seeing that everyone is alive, everyone is um, communicating, everyone is, and this is not just cosmic and woo-woo, this is just how life is. Now, that makes a hell of a lot of sense to me, Derek, but unfortunately many in the so-called global environmental movement, even fellow anti-capitalists or you know, radical environmentalists, have labelled you a misanthrope or even the uh, somewhat paradoxical term, an eco-fascist. Is this still a common response to your work? And while it may seem almost absurd to ask, but is there any justification at all for these labels? No, I'll tell you. I mean, so before we, before we go on about... I mean, for one thing... I'm very clear that I hate this culture, <laughs> but I don't hate humanity. I mean, the Talua lived where I live now for at least 12,500 years, if you believe in science. They've been carbon dated just 12,500 years ago. And if you believe the, the Talua, then they lived here since the beginning of time, and they didn't crash the place. So, no, I don't hate the Talua. I hate what this culture has done. I hate the fact that in the last 15 years... Um, even in the last 15 years, Pacific tree frogs in this, in this area have gone from being so loud you couldn't have a conversation at night outside because we can't hear to um, being relatively quiet. Um, I hate the fact that, um, that the starfish have disappeared off the coast. I mean, I, I hate the fact that this culture is killing the planet. And I hate the fact that we're so smug about it. So, and I hate the fact this culture commits genocide against indigenous humans. I mean, I've been very clear from the beginning that what I hate is this culture. I don't hate humans. And I've been very clear that not all humans are destructive. Um, so, no, the misanthrope thing just doesn't really work. I hate what humans have become. I hate that we have enslaved ourselves to machines such that we are more willing to um, kill the planet than we are to question the continued use of industrial tools. Um, it's like after Fukushima, there was a, um, a great quote by a Japanese energy minister who said that, uh, of course, they can't uh, give up on um, nuclear power because, as he said, no one can imagine living without electricity. And 
it's like really interesting because a hundred years ago, humans most even today most humans live without electricity, and a hundred years ago, no humans had electricity. One hundred twenty years ago, one hundred thirty years ago, and we did quite fine. And the thing that I think is really interesting is he said no one can imagine living without electricity. He didn't say no one can imagine living without polar bears. No one can imagine living without cod. No one can imagine living without salmon. No one can imagine living without ladybugs, meadowlarks, cardinals. Um, and likewise, there was a, a New York Times editorial a while back, maybe six months ago, that just really annoyed me. It was about how um, they were talking about the importance of making an arc for the Anthropocene. And... Um, what they were really saying is they, they were saying we have to make really tough decisions as to which creatures we save and which creatures we let go, which is another way to say which creatures this culture drives extinct. And um, so how do we make these decisions? Do we, do we take the ones that are prettiest? Do we take the ones that are who are? They said that. Uh, do, we take the, do we save the ones who are the most useful to us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And my point is they're talking blithely about driving entire classes of species extinct. But what they never mentioned in this article was the possibility of letting, in, letting any uh, technologies go away. So they were blithely willing to say, oh, so what? We could lose whales. Boom. We could lose salmon. We could lose bison. We could lose whatever. We could lose great apes. But they never talked about, oh, we could lose the, the, the Internet. We didn't, they didn't even say we could lose Internet pornography. It's like... That is what they are completely enslaved to. So, no, I don't hate humans. I hate what humans have become in this addiction to this technologized death machine. I want to tell you about another exchange I had with that guy from Nature magazine. That would just, it just cracked me up. He was a dedicated Marxist who insisted that um, it is possible to have an industrial society in which all exchanges are voluntary. I said, okay, uh, great. Uh, and he said, and this is to have cities, too. I said, okay, great. So how do you get around your city? How do you have transportation? And he said, um, we, have, we have mass transit. We have buses. I said, what are the buses made of? He said, metal. I said, where do you get the metal? He said, mines. I said, okay, you do recognize that mines are really one of the first two or three forms of two or three industries that require slavery because nobody goes to live underneath the ground voluntarily. So you either have to... Um, take them at the point of a gun or sword or something, or you have to... And he said, well, what we'll do is we'll just pay them a whole lot. We'll pay them so much they'll go underground. It's like, okay, great. But we do recognize that mines are inherently destructive of, of rivers, right? And he said he doesn't really care about rivers, but he agreed with that, that the mines are inherently destructive of rivers. You have to agree with that. And I said, okay, what about the humans who live alongside that river that you're going to destroy for the mines to build your buses? What about them? He said, well, you pay them to move. I said, okay... Great. What if they have lived there for 12,500 years and they won't move? He said, well, you pay them more. And he said, well, their ancestors are buried there. They will not move. This is, this is their home. Money doesn't mean as much to them as the river. He said, well, how many of them are there? And I said, I don't know, 500? What difference does it make? He said, well, we vote. And you have the million people in the city vote to kick the 500 people who live along the river off because we need that mine. And I said, do you realize that in less than two minutes you have gone from purely voluntary exchanges to democratic empire? So it's like, as long as you are supporting, you, the people who might call me an eco-fascist, as long as you are supporting industries that 
require this entire system of military, land theft, genocide. It's like, I think that before we talk about fascism, you might take a look in the mirror. Certainly. And I'd just clarify, I don't think you're an eco-fascist at all. I was just playing uh, devil's oh, avocado. <laughs> um, just uh, one thing I find very interesting, I guess, is this question of imagination. You were talking uh, before about uh, you know inability to imagine you know no internet, and yet we can quite easily accept uh, a world without many uh, of the you know the various animals and you know our various uh, you know brothers and sisters that live on this planet. And I guess one thing that really does keep me awake at night is that. I guess the fear of uh, with our lives becoming more and more simulated as a result of this online technology that we've become incredibly disembodied and in I guess in one sense everything has become a spectacle um, and so I, I guess I fear that um, you know people like Baudrillard were right when they said that we won't even notice the end of the world because we've already seen it before is this something that you struggle with and how do you think we can overcome this this spectacle this online spectacle that is so much a part of our lives these days okay okay so i I agree with the analysis and then i also understand this parody or toxic mimic is really the word of um of diversity that you know i can i can go online and i can um look at pictures of uh, Tasmanian wolves and quagga and a stuffed passenger pigeon and somehow pretend that they're not extinct. And um, I think that that's, or worse, actually, I mean, what's what's even worse than than having those pictures is the fact that I, I don't think that most people actually care. I think that he's absolutely right, that that Japanese guy was absolutely right that most people who have electricity would have a harder time imagining living without that than they would having a, than, than imagine living without, without lampreys or, or, you know, whatever else. And part of the problem is that our, our loyalty has been transferred over to the system and away from the real world. And this happens once again in ways, ways big and small. Um, you know, a joke I've told for years is that a friend of mine calls me up and says, how much longer do you think we're going to be in in Afghanistan or Iraq or whatever country the United States is invading um, at the time? And I look around and say, I mean, she says, how much longer do you think we're going to be in Iraq? And I, I look around and say, I thought we are in Northern California. You know, she's saying we about the United States military. And um, so there's that part of it. But then it's deeper, too, because there's this, this great exchange that I read years ago about between a southern slaveholder, slave-owning philosopher and a northern pro-abolitionist capitalist buddy. And the southern slave owner was saying that, that basically there are land ownership conditions in which it's in the capitalist interest to own slaves and land, land ownership conditions which in the capitalist interest not to own slaves. And this is going to have a point in a second. And the land ownership conditions are really simple. But if there's a lot of land and not many people, then that means that People have access to land, which means they have access to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they have access to self-sufficiency, which means there is no way they're going to go to work for you except at the point of a gun. But if there's a lot of people and not much land, they don't have access to land, which means they don't have access to, to food, clothing, and shelter, which means they don't have access to self-sufficiency, which means they'll go to work for you for whatever pittance you want to give them. And if you can convince people that that's the case, 
then you've got them. And another way to say all this is that if your experience is your food comes from the grocery store, not your belief, not your theoretical anything, but your experience, your food comes from the grocery store and your water comes from the tap, you will defend to the death the system that brings those to you, even when that system is murdering the planet. I don't see much way of talking about this culture and talking about culture change without talking about addiction. We are addicted to this control over the natural world um, such that a wild river is a scary river. A wild forest is a scary forest. And so this culture has to try to control it. And here's the thing, too, and I guess this is one of the reasons that some of the people call me an eco-fascist, is that I have asked literally tens of thousands of people over the last 20 years do you believe this culture will undergo a voluntary transformation to a sane and sustainable way of living? Nobody ever says yes. Like, literally, out of those tens of thousands, I'm going to say five people have ever said yes. And the next question is, if you don't believe the culture is going to have a voluntary transformation and you care about life on this planet, what does that mean for your strategy and for your tactics? And, of course, as soon as I say that, then that's when some people call me a fascist because I'm just asking the question, if you care about actual living, this, a living planet, this is the only planet we know of in the entire universe that has life, and this culture is killing it. And it seems to me that when that's at stake, it might be worthwhile to ask some questions about what works and what doesn't and what, what it would take. Now, just uh, on that point, I think it's a very important point. Uh, in your seminal work, Endgame, uh, the 17th premise reads, and I'm sure you know it quite well, it is a mistake or more likely denial to base our decisions on whether actions arising from these will or won't frighten fence-sitters or the mass of Americans. Now, here in Australia, activism is still very much dominated by a culture of passivity and a belief in uh, this uh, sort of mass movement building. Uh, media is nearly always given primacy to any action or campaign or, or whatnot. And uh, so I assume your position hasn't changed, but why do you think so many still are paralyzed to take the action that is needed, the action that you're talking about? And, and what exactly do you think that action is? Well, I think there's a bunch of reasons. One of them is that we still believe we have something left to lose. And fear really is the belief that you have something left to lose. And it's like, okay, so I was, I was talking to a, um, a fisheries biologist one time about, about rivers, and she was saying that we misdefine rivers, that rivers um, actually ride like snakes across the landscape. They don't, they don't stay in their banks. They, they flood, and then they go to a new channel, and then they, they will flood again, and they'll go to a new channel, and, and that's, that's what they do. And... Um, and she said every time there's this river that she knows very well that she, she works on, and she said every time it floods, it breaks her heart because there's all these frogs die, all these fish die, all these trees die, salamanders. And, and then at the same time, it makes her really happy every time it floods because this is what the river's supposed to do. And she had this wonderful phrase, which is every time it floods, it causes short-term habitat loss and long-term habitat gain. And when she said that to me, it gave me chills because I was thinking, why do so many of us stay in bad relationships? It's because we're afraid of the short-term loss for the long-term gain. Why do we stay in bad jobs? Because we're afraid of the short-term loss for the long-term gain. We, you know, what we're doing is we're all sitting here hoping and praying that some, for some miracle and just, you know, continuing on with the work. I want to be really clear. Okay, so that I wanted to say that, but another part of this I want to say is I actually don't have a problem 
with people trying to build a mass movement when there is a possibility of achieving something through that mass movement and when you are also telling the truth. I think that in the United States, I mean, the, the civil rights movement was a great example of they needed a mass movement um, to agitate for those very real gains. The, uh, gaining women's right to vote was in both in the U.K. and the U.S., and I don't know about other countries besides that, but it's the same. You, need to, you do need to build up support that way. And, and it's the same with, did you ever see the movie uh, The Wind That Shakes the Barley? If you recall, it starts with these, a bunch of guys um, playing hurling, which is an Irish sport. And you know, I was wondering, what, what, does that, what does that have to do with, with the Irish resistance against the British? But it ends up that the predecessor of the IRA was the IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood. And the predecessor of the IRB was something called something like the Gaelic Sports League, where they would get together and they would play Gaelic sports. And one of the reasons they were doing this is to learn strategy, learn cohesion, all this stuff. But another reason they were doing this is because they were breaking their identification with the British. And they were saying, we are not British. We're not going to do a British sport. We're going to do an Irish sport. And that was why the Gaelic literature revival was very important for the Irish resistance, is, is breaking that identification. So I do think it's really important for people to to try to build movements that are that way. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm a writer, so of course I think that, that affecting discourse is really important. And I'm trying desperately to get people to break their identification with the dominant culture and to identify with the real world and with the land where they live. Oh, and also I want to say, I am not a purist. I actually don't care politically whether someone is working within the system or outside the system. What I care about is really straightforward. I want for there to be more wild salmon every year than the year before and more migratory songbirds every year than the year before. And I don't care if that happens because somebody passes a law or if that happens because somebody starts a revolution. I actually don't care. That's, do you see what I'm trying to get at? What I care about is material reality. And if there ends up that there are more uh, saltwater crocodiles, I'm happy. You know, before you and I turned on the, the tape, you know, I mentioned, mentioned uh, something about optimism. And I'll tell you something that does give me some optimism which is that you have to take it where you can get it, you know, in this line of work, as you know. Um, there, are, there, have been more, there are more than 450 dead zones in the oceans, and precisely one of them has recovered. And the way that one recovered, it was in the Black Sea, and the way it recovered was that the Soviet Union collapsed. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, it made it so it was no longer economically feasible to do industrial agriculture along that part of the Black Sea. And so with the harm removed, the sea recovered. And life wants to live. And the most important thing we can do is stop the damage. You know, I, I, I hear I mean, an image that keeps coming to mind all the time for environmentalism is that you have all these doctors and nurses are working desperately as fast as they can to put bandages on this body of a person who's just bleeding out and they're you know working really hard and they're you know their their work is so important i completely agree that it's incredibly important for them to be doing this this very hard work but the thing they're not doing is at the same time they're putting all these bandages on the serial killer is still stabbing the body it's like stop the primary damage and you know whatever else we do if we don't stop the primary damage you know, there, there is no future.
so this is this is one reason you know, that I don't really believe in that revolution versus re- reform dichotomy, is because if all we do is reform work, this culture is going to grind away until there's nothing left. And if, on the other hand, we all wait for the great glorious revolution and nobody is getting their hands dirty by doing reform work by protecting ten acres here, a thousand acres there, this creature here, that plant there. If nobody's doing that, but are all you know busy plotting for the great revolution, there's not going to be anything when we get there anyway. So when I say use any means necessary, that's not code language for violence. That's code language for get off your butt and do something. Because the truth is, if we had the numbers, we could shut down this whole thing completely nonviolently. I don't believe we have the numbers, but that's not the problem. The problem is the most of us are sitting on the butt waiting for some other miracle, not realizing the only miracle we're going to get is us. Now, you've almost uh, answered this question already, but I was going to ask you about uh, something you've often spoken about is that, you know, the conflicted role between being a writer and an activist. And obviously, as you're saying, there is really no, there's no line, there's no uh, differentiation between it. Uh, in a language older than words, though, you did write, every morning when I wake up, I ask myself whether I should write or blow up a dam. And clearly you are still writing, um, but I guess finally, if you could just talk to us about the value in that, do you still, you know, well, obviously you do still value the process of writing and the effect it has? Yeah, I do, I guess. But I have to say that uh, through entirely legal means, they took out the Elwha, the dam on the Elwha, dams, two dams on the Elwha, and the, mirac- the recovery's been miraculous. Um, take out the dams and the place, the place recovers very quickly. Discourse in general, whether it's this radio program or my book or, or any other form of trying to do social change, is an indirect process. You know, what I am trying to do is to recruit people to perceive the world differently and to act differently in the world. And insofar as I can multiply my efforts through that, then my efforts are useful. But if I can't, I mean, if that doesn't actually multiply my efforts, then it's not useful. And, I mean, because really the only measure by which we'll be judged. And the only measure I care about, really, is, is like I said earlier, whether there's more wild salmon, whether there's more migratory songbirds, whether there's more dragonflies. The dragonfly populations have collapsed here. Um, used to be in the summer, I could see, at any time over the pond, I could see 100 dragonflies, easily. And last couple years, uh, usually I maybe see five or six in a, in a day. Um, and that's the only measure that I, I really care about. You know, when I, was, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, and like when I was mowing lawn, I would fantasize about being a writer, and I would fantasize about having 25 books out, and that's so exciting. Now I've got something like 25 books out. So there's a level at which my career is successful, but it's not the level I care about. The level I care about is, is the only one that matters, which is the health of the planet. It's the only thing that matters to any of us. It's the only thing, it's the only thing that matters ultimately anywhere is the health of the planet. Is the planet a better place? Is the planet a better place because I've done my work? Well, I don't know, because there's, uh, I have this, this friend who has, uh, she's working so hard to save prairie dogs, and she does this great, just fabulous work, and she has uh, helped save, you know, at least parts of some prairie dog villages, and that, that her work is so important. And I write to her and say, you know, gosh, your work is so important. It's so wonderful. I'm so grateful that you do it. And then she'll write back and say that, honestly, she wouldn't be doing it if, if she wouldn't have read my books. And so, you know, and I'm not, the point is not my books, because I can also say I wouldn't have written my books had I not read um, Neil Everton's book 
or a few years ago, I had a chance to have dinner with Alice Walker. And I told her, and this is completely true, that had she not written her essay, I believe it's called Call Me Blue, she had this great essay about a horse that I, can, I can't even talk more about it without crying. It's just so great essay. And I, I had the opportunity to tell her, because she said to me, wow, I really loved Language Older Than Words. It's a great book. I said, I have to tell you honestly, I would not have written that book if you wouldn't have written the Call Me Blue or whatever the essay is called. And my point on that is we're all holding hands, and we play different roles in this, but we're all holding hands through history and across continents to try to work together to stop this madness and to preserve whatever we can of the planet.